We are now uh, in week five of our Malachi series. And let's be honest, Malachi has not been an easy book to go through. This has been uh, somewhat of a brutal book. Uh, It starts out very nice. You know, I have loved you, says the Lord. But it's precisely because God loves his people that he sends Malachi with some weighty prophecies. And as we've seen over the past three weeks, um, these prophecies are not easy. God has some serious issues he wants to deal with with his people, but it's not that God wants to beat his people over the head about their sins. It's that their sins separate them from uh, being recipients of his love in such a way that they are filled with love and grace and mercy and truth. And God wants to restore the relationship. That is why God in his love addresses these weighty issues. And this week, To be honest, we turn a bit of a corner in Malachi. We start to get a glimpse of how God is going to set things right with his people. But we also get a further look into the people's hearts. We get a further look into their motivation as to why they are not faithful. God explicitly says in our passage today in verse 3-5, I do not change. His love towards his people is unchanging. His faithfulness towards his people and his promises is unchanging. And yet, It doesn't always seem that way, does it? Sometimes it seems like God isn't present and it seems like he has changed. Sometimes we look at the world, we look at our own little circle and we think, Lord, where are you? The God I'm reading in the scripture seems different than the God I'm experiencing in my life. And frankly, sometimes we want to change God. Sometimes we see God in the scriptures and we say, if we could change that part of your character, Lord, that would be great. Today, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at why we want to change God. We're going to look at the bad news of a God who doesn't change and the good news of a God who doesn't change. Why we want to change God, the bad news of a God who doesn't change, and the good news of a God who doesn't change. So open up your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? If we jump back to chapter 1, verse 13, uh, Israel says that they find the sacrificial system a weariness. The system that God gave them to have a relationship with him, they find a weariness. And now God says, it's not that you should be wearied by me, Israel. I'm wearied with you. I'm wearied with your words. I wish you would stop speaking. This past week, uh, my little daughter, Ansley, had a cold. And, you know, she was, she's still cute, but she was all snotty and, and coughing and she couldn't sleep. And I got to be honest, she was crying through the night. And I was wearied by her crying. I just I wanted like an hour of sleep. And as the week went on, I just got more and more wearied. I've just been exhausted all week. Some of you know what this is like. Some of you know what it's like to get into a conversation with people about a topic you disagree with. I, I don't know, maybe it's vaccinations. But you, you talk and you are just wearied by the banter that goes back and forth, back and forth, and it just seems to go nowhere. It's exhausting. God here in this passage, God is tired. He's wearied by Israel's words. And this is in the perfect tense. This means it's something that's been happening for a while and it's been building and building and building into a mountain in the present. Nobody, nobody wants to hear God is wearied with you. When someone who loves you 
is wearied with you. It means that something is seriously wrong in the relationship. Unless you're a baby, then it's okay. Uh, Israel asks, how have we wearied you, Lord? Now think about that. You've wearied me with your words. What does Israel say? Here's some more words. How have we wearied you, Lord? They've wearied him because they make um, a massive accusation against his character. They're actually defaming God. They say everyone um, who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now Job, uh, Jeremiah, the Psalms, they ask similar questions. They ask, why do the wicked live on? Why do they prosper? Why do they get away with their ways? It's a common struggle, and it's, it's a common question that the people of God ask. But the big difference here in Malachi is that the people aren't asking a question about the wicked. They're making a statement. God, you love the wicked. You delight in them. What would lead God's people to making an accusation like this? The, the heart of the issue is tucked away in the question that we get. Where is the God of justice? The word justice here, it's significant. Um, if you get it wrong, say you, if you say this word is injustice. It's about the suffering in the world. You could end up spending 15 hours of your week writing a sermon that you have to throw away on Thursday at 4 p.m. because you realize you've completely misinterpreted the passage. Uh, that may or may not have happened to me. Uh, it, it did. Justice, righteousness, uh, judgment are rolled up into this Hebraic word that we translate as justice. It could easily be translated where is the God of righteousness? Where is the God of judgment? And I think there's actually good reasons to translate it at, or at least say that the emphasis is falling on the question being, where is the God of judgment? Because Israel is essentially saying God has no judgment. He calls evil good. He loves the wicked. It's also a covenantal word. It, it's um, an accusation, really. Israel's saying, God, you haven't been faithful to our marriage vows. You haven't held up your end of the deal. You haven't blessed us in the way that you said you would. You haven't been seeking justice and judgment on our behalf. Essentially, they're saying, God, you are not faithful. And they look out at the, word and they, the world and they can't make sense of it. Because if you think about what they've been through, uh, they've just gone through exile. They've seen nations that are far more wicked than they are uh, being used by God as an instrument to bring judgment upon them. And from their vantage point, it looks like God does prefer the wicked. From their vantage point, it doesn't look like God is being faithful. It looks like he's changed. It looks like he's gone back on his word. But their vantage point is also myopic and it's small and they have tunnel vision. They think that God's justice, that God's work in the world should revolve around their desire and their agenda, and their plan, around their convenience. And they miss that God is up to something much larger in the world. And we don't want to miss what's actually happening here in Malachi. And unfaithful people are accusing God of being unfaithful. Imagine an unfaithful husband who didn't cheat on his wife just once, but multiple times, over and over and over again. And imagine if the wife were totally faithful, just a, a lovely woman who serves and loves her husband. And eventually the whole messy issue comes to light. And they're arguing and the husband says to her, 
you weren't faithful to me. That's why I wasn't faithful to you. And she says, how? Well, you didn't keep the house clean the way I wanted. You didn't, um, you know, live the way I wanted. You didn't have dinner ready the way I wanted. You, you, you just weren't the person I wanted. You, you might have even cheated on me. You weren't faithful to me. We would see how ridiculous that is. We would see that um, he had to define her as unfaithful so that he could justify his own unfaithfulness. And it's absurd. It, it would be wrong. When we keep the entire context then of Malachi in our sights, uh, Israel's unfaithfulness is what comes first. It's Israel's faithfulness that precedes their question of where God is. You see, when God uh, judged Israel and used the Chaldeans during the exile as an instrument of his judgment, it wasn't that God delights in judging his people. It's that sometimes the people are so far gone and their hearts are so hardened that this is the only way that God can act in order to bring about his redemptive purposes in their lives. And they missed that. And the point we need to take away is that Israel were unfaithful long before they asked, where is the God of justice? Doesn't that make you wonder why, though? Why would people who are being unfaithful to God want to ask him questions at all? Because to remain unfaithful, with any sort of conscience intact, you actually have to redefine who God is. To remain unfaithful, you need to change your perception of God. Otherwise, you can't easily justify living the way you want to live. We do this all the time. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's you want to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And so you say, well, it's more convenient. Uh, it's, it's more affordable. We're, we're at each other's houses all the time anyways. It's going to be cheaper. We're going to save money. And essentially, you redefine God as a God of pragmatism rather than a God of covenantal faithfulness. Say you want to have an affair and you're unhappy. And you, you, you say, well, God cares more about my happiness and so you redefine God as a God who only cares about your self-serving needs rather than a God who cares about uh, restoration and a marriage being made whole. What else? I don't know. Uh, maybe you like to go out and party. I don't know what the kids are doing these days. Whippets or, you know, you go out and you, you get drunk. And um, how do you redefine God? Well, Jesus, he turned a bunch of water into wine, and it was a lot of wine, I'll be honest. So obviously God, like he knows how to party, he knows how to have a good time. God's a God of indulgence. Or say you just want to live for yourself. You just want to live for your own dreams anyways. How do you have to redefine God? Oh, God's not really involved in the universe. He created the universe, but we're, we're kind of left to do whatever we want. When we do this, uh, this is... Anthropomorphism at its best. Uh, if Roger were here, he'd be really impressed that I used a big word. It, it's essentially just to say um, we're making God in our own image. Israel says God calls evil good. He delights in evil. Israel says this about God. Think about Isaiah 5.20. God says to Israel, you call evil good and good evil. What God says is true of Israel, they deny and say is true of him. Israel arrogantly defines God in their own image without even realizing it. And that gives us a picture into just how broken our hearts really are. That we can be calling uh, something good, evil, and not even realize that we're doing it. And so when we draw God in our own image, though, when we redefine who he is, when we try to change our perception of him, 
It's just so that we can justify living unfaithful lives. So think about it. If, a God is, if, if God calls evil good for Israel, who is he to have any moral standard imposed upon them? He calls evil good. He can't tell us how to live. Israel, in doing this, they make themselves to be God's judge. He's in the wrong. They're in the right. The verdict is in. They stand above him. He owes them answers. This is what is happening, and this is why God is wearied. When we're committed to living for ourselves, when we're being unfaithful to God's ways, we will not speak truly of God. We'll actually slander him because it's more convenient for us to define him in a way that makes him weak or insignificant or uninvolved. What do you call that? Self-righteousness. And let's say, just for the sake of covering our bases, that uh, Israel, they, they see their circumstances, they ask the questions, and it's because of some really tough circumstances that they're being unfaithful, that their unfaithfulness didn't precede the questions. Let's just say, hypothetically, that's the case. They look out at the world, God, where are you? Why are things this way? And they say, we're not going to be faithful. We know this. God, where are you? Why, why isn't life going the way I want? Well, you're distant, so I'm going to be distant. God, uh, you don't care about me, so I'm not going to care about you. God, you're, you're too rule-based. I'm not even going to try uh, to follow you. Here's the thing. Understanding what God is doing in our lives and what God is doing in the world is not a prerequisite for our faithfulness. Understanding what God is doing is not a prerequisite for our faithfulness. We are called to be faithful to God even when we don't have the whole picture, even when we don't fully understand how he's working in our lives or in our community or in our city or in our world. We are called to be faithful even when we can't seem to get our bearings. So either way, you read it. The truth is, like Israel, we just want to live life on our own terms. And we also want God to help us live our lives on our own terms. So we either redefine them in a way that we can justify living that way. We wrestle and we get mad and we justify living the way we want because he's not showing up the way we want. This is why we want to change God. Now here's the, to me, breathtaking beauty of God in this passage. To an unfaithful people who are slandering him and accusing him, he still answers. He still talks. Even when he's wearied with them, he still speaks. But the answer is a little jarring at first. Despite how much Israel may want to change God or how much we want to change God, the bad news is that God hasn't changed. He remains the same. Why is God not changing bad news? Look at God's reply in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. There's two futures going on here. The future and the future from that future. Uh, 
the first future is from Malachi's day. The prophecy is about a future event that's going to take place. God is going to send his messenger who will prepare the way for God to make a personal appearance at his own temple. This is the future from Malachi's day. And then Malachi also talks about a future from that future. He talks about the day of the Lord's coming, which is synonymous with the the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. This was a day that Israel expected. This was a day um, they anticipated. The day would be the end of the age when God finally comes and declares what is righteous and what is wicked, when God finally brings down judgment and makes things right. And so when Israel asks, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of judgment? Surely this day is in the back of their minds. And when this day comes, when God uh, removes the small veil between us and him and brings us before him in judgment, he asks us, who will stand? When he refines the earth with fire and scrubs it clean, he asks, will any of you remain? It's rhetorical. The answer is no. No one's going to remain. Israel's called God's judgment into question. They've stood above him in uh, in judgment, and he reminds them, when I come to judge, it's not going to go well for you. When the day of the Lord comes in the future, it is not going to fare well for you, Israel. Because you've all been unfaithful. The entire world has been unfaithful, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. When we talk about judgment, And we we hash out a theology of Judgment Day. There's three gut responses that all of us will will fall into in some regard, I think. We really don't like it. The first thing we'll say is, you know what? I don't believe in a God of of judgment and and wrath, if you're English, and uh, and hellfire. I don't believe in that sort of God. I, I believe in a God of love. And so you work hard to redefine God as solely a God of love by the way of which you understand love. And so you surgically remove any parts of scripture that don't uh, line up with this God of love that you've created. But this is just to make God into who we want him to be. True love, true love burns with fury against things that malign love. True love acts with passion and strength to protect love. God's wrath is his love in action against evil. In the face of raw evil, in the face of injustice, and everything that is wrong with the world, to simply look at it and say, ah, don't worry about it. I love you. That's not love. That's passivity. Because God is a God of love. He's also a God of holiness and his Holy love acts in judgment against evil. It must, otherwise it is not love at all. The second uh, response is, if there's judgment, surely I'll be fine. Surely God will recognize that I'm actually a pretty awesome person. I part my hair right. I've done good things. I've cared for people. Justice and judgment, those are for the really bad people. Justice and judgment, they're they're for the the murderers and the adulterers and the people who've done terrible things. I haven't done any of that stuff. I'll be okay. And, And you think you can stand at judgment because you've created a category of people that don't need justice dealt out from God's hand to them. The third response is a little different. You think about judgment 
and you just get angry. If there's a God, which is a big if, if there's a God, if you show up on his heavenly porch, you're going to be the one asking the questions. Where were you, Mr. God of justice? Why did you make yourself so hard to find? You don't see the day of refining as something to be feared. You actually see it as a day of judgment over God, whether you respond by uh, denying God's judgment then, or thinking that you'll be fine at judgment, or whether you think you'll get to stand and judge God. You all have one thing in common. It's because you don't fear God. That is what Malachi says. You don't fear God because you don't think God needs to act justly against you. When I was 16, uh, I was bored one night with some friends, and we came up with a game. We broke into uh, two teams of five, and we each had a car. It was around 8 p.m., and, and the goal was to see who could steal the most garden gnomes by midnight. Challenge accepted. By 11 o'clock, our team's trunk was brimming, like with a little city of garden gnomes, you know, just flourishing in that back seat. And, and we were driving slowly through these neighborhoods to, to spot garden gnomes. And then we got greedy because we saw the gnome of all gnomes, Mr. Gnomeverse of, you know, 1998, just an incredible garden gnome. And we said, we got to have this guy. We decided he must be ours. And so we got him. But what we didn't realize was that the person who lived in that house was home and saw us take their gnome. And she got into her car and we were all of a sudden in a car chase, which is quite exhilarating when you're 16. And unfortunately, though, we took a wrong left turn and we ended in a cul-de-sac and we were cornered and she gets out of her car and I have never seen someone so livid in my whole life. And she comes and she says, give me back my gnome. My grandfather made that and painted it. It is my family's prized possession. We're like, we're so sorry. Pop the trunk, she sees all the gnomes. <laughs> She's so mad, so she calls the police. But of course, we have no foresight, so we just leave thinking that, oh, they'll, they'll never find us. Well, I get home and the police call because she had our license plate number. And I answered the phone, fortunately. And they said, okay, look, Mr. Stern, I'm assuming this is your dad's car. You have two options. We can come down to your house right now, arrest you, take you in. Or tomorrow, you can tell your parents what you did. You can turn yourself into the police station and we'll go from there. So I chose option two, super awkward conversation with my parents. I could tell they were trying not to laugh, but I went to the police station and you know, I had to gather my friends together and bring all the gnomes and they said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna return every single one of those gnomes, which is practically impossible. And, and you're gonna apologize and then I'm gonna ask each owner if they wanna press charges for theft. And so we had to go like house after house after house, returning gnomes, seeing if uh, charges would be brought for theft. Now, if I'm honest, it seems sort of a trivial thing to do. It seemed like a bit of a waste of the police officer's time. It's only garden gnomes, after all. In the terms of theft, I mean, it's not like I'm stealing cars. It's just, it's a gnome. It's funny. But here's the thing. If any one of the owners of those gnomes said, yeah, we want to press charges, we would have been guilty. We wouldn't be able to stand. We would be at the whims of the court and whatever consequences they uh, decide to dish out for us. In a much more serious way, uh, we cannot stand on equal ground with God. He stands above us as the just judge, not the other way around. Uh, he doesn't owe us any answers. We owe him answers. Malachi says the truth is you can't stand before him. For Israel, the true judgment is this. You're the ones who've been unfaithful 
to the covenant. You're the ones who've sinned against the Lord over and over again. When judgment stands, you won't, uh, you won't stand. Not a chance. But for all of us, Jesus comes into the world and he says, this is the true judgment in John's gospel. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The bad news of a God who doesn't change is that his judgment doesn't change either. And the day of the Lord is still coming. Malachi is clear. If we try to stand that day, if we try to go through God's refining fires of judgment, we will be consumed. There will be nothing left. To our surprise, not a single one of the owners pressed charges for us stealing the garden gnomes. Most of them said, oh, just being stupid kids, which was true. And they decided to have mercy on us. Do you know what the good news is about God being a God who doesn't change? His desire is not to let his judgment consume us because he's also merciful. Look at verse six in its entirety. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O Jacob, you are not consumed. You accuse me of being unfaithful, Israel. You say that I've abandoned the covenant. Here's the thing, I haven't changed. I will keep my promises. I will be faithful to you. But if I come in judgment and injustice as you cry out and ask me to come, you will not stand. So something needs to be done. Something radically expected, unexpected has to happen before the day of the Lord. Which brings us back to verse 1 of chapter 3. I'll send my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This has always been God's loving plan. God sends Jesus into the world. God makes a personal appearance. He comes not to destroy or consume us, but to purify us. Look at verse three. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and purify the sons of Levi. When God comes, it was supposed to be a day of judgment, the refining fires of judgment. But God knows that his people will not pass through that day and he wants to be faithful to his promises to them. So instead, he comes down into the world. He walks on the soil of earth. He visits us to purify us, to cleanse us. Because he knows that if he doesn't do something, we will never pass through the fires of his judgment. So how can the refining fires of God not consume us? That is the question that we have to ask. The cross. The cross is the utter faithfulness of God. The cross is the extent to which God opens up his heart and shows us just how faithful he is, just how far he is willing to go to be faithful to the promises he made that he will bring us through. On the cross, Jesus drinks the cup of God's judgment as a refiner's fire removes all impurities so that only the pure remains. God dealt with all of humanity's impurities and sin on the cross so that only Jesus Christ's faithfulness remains. He was consumed on the cross so that we would not be consumed. This is how God refines us. 
Only Jesus can pass through, though, the refining fires of God's judgment and ultimately remain because Christ was resurrected and showed us that judgment is not the end aim of God. The end aim of God is delight and love. And the good news is that he came to refine us so that he could bring us with him. Because God's desire is not that any should perish, but that all might be saved and know Jesus. And it doesn't matter how good you are, because I know in this room, a lot of you, you are really decent and good people. None of that will matter on the day of judgment. The only thing that will matter is Christ's faithfulness and whether you recognize that you can't stand before God without what Christ has done for you. Malachi, he reminds the people of this impending judgment. But then he says, but before it comes, God promises to be faithful to you, to refine you, to clean you up. And only once he's done that, only once he sent Christ hundreds of years later to uh, Malachi, then Malachi says in verse 5, then the Lord will draw near for judgment. The day of the Lord. Then he will be swift against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. God hasn't changed. Judgment is still coming. But he's also prepared a way for us to make it through. What I absolutely love about this passage, I love this, is that Israel's accusation against God becomes a beautiful divine irony. They say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Because of Christ and his accomplished work on the cross, this is true. We have done evil in the sight of the Lord and God has dealt with that through Jesus and he clothes us in Christ's righteousness. He makes us clean, and because of Christ, he delights in us. God takes this accusation against him, and he turns it around with grace. He says, you actually need that to be true. You need me to be a God who loves the wicked, a God who who does justice for the evil so that you can stand in my presence. Malachi is saying to us, do you think you can question the judgment of God? Think again. Do you think you can stand at the judgment of God? Think again. Do you think you can doubt the faithfulness of God? Think again. Stop trying to redefine God and change him because judgment, it will come. But God doesn't change. His faithfulness doesn't change either. So I just want to leave you with the question. Are you going to try to stand before God on your own two legs or are you going to cling to what Christ accomplished on the cross for us? Because only by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus can you pass through the refining fires of God's judgment. And here's the beautiful thing. This is not just about the future and judgment day. Christ's refining work changes the way we live here and now and our lives start to look more beautiful. Our lives start to align more with God's way. And we start to see Jesus living powerfully in our midst, which gives us a profound hope that the God of justice will return and he will make all things right.